Hi guys, I'm Trish. I'm Sarah. Sarah and I are attorneys and founders of the law firm Lincoln Durr in Charlotte, North Carolina. Together we've been practicing law now for two decades, which just kind of makes me cringe every time I say that for a long time. But we're using this podcast to share the lessons we've learned inside the courtroom, outside the courtroom as business owners, and just in life in general. So welcome to Trying to Win. Hey, this is Sarah. Hey, I'm Trish. And this is our podcast called Trying to Win. Podcast about being trial lawyers and what else? Oh, just about being lawyers, about being trial lawyers, about being business or trying to be business owners and practicing law. There you go. And we've done Taking a care lot of, of Yeah, we've done a lot of stuff on the podcast so far, but we haven't really spent a lot of time talking about what is one of our kind of bread and butter areas of practice, which is medical malpractice cases and what they really are. What do, what do they consist of? What do they look like? What Why do people file them? How are they defended? What drives the outcomes in them? So today we thought we would talk about what really happens in a malpractice case and hopefully what people will take away from it and why it's important is because first of all, we love to talk about our medical malpractice work. It's the area of practice that we have maintained primarily because it's what gets us into the courtroom and allows us to try cases, which is what we love to do. It's meaningful too. Like you feel like you've done something, you know, like you feel like you're defending someone, especially if you you feel like you're really right about something, you feel like you have saved their career. It gives you a lot of personal gratification for me, at least. Absolutely. While it means something about money to one side, to the defense side that we are on, it's about somebody's reputation as a physician in the community. And while they can't necessarily lose their license as a result of a malpractice verdict against them, it's still significant to them in terms of how they are perceived by others in the community, how they're perceived by their peers, by their patients and all that. So it is hugely important to them, which makes it hugely important to us. So uh, that's what we wanted to talk about today. There's a lot of stuff that kind of goes into it. So we, we might actually just need to break it down a little bit more and focus more on the motivations and then like what makes us defend. But, but we definitely need to do one where we kind of talk about every little piece of it because there are so many so many complexities to it, like the reporting and all of that. But anyway, that's for another day. Yeah, that's that's the, the like the really technical side of it. This is more of the why do people decide to file the lawsuits? And then why, how or why do we decide that it is a case that we are going to defend to the bitter end? And those are kind of the emotional. So I mean, part of it's emotional, part of it is technical. And what does the evidence allow us to do in terms of defending a case? Because there are certainly some that we can't defend, or we don't think we could successfully win in front of a jury, which are two different things. So yeah, so why don't we get started with kind of just how does a medical malpractice case get started? And Oh, I can answer that. Yeah, go, <laughs> go, go, go. I'll tell you how a medical malpractice case gets started. I say this to doctors all the time and healthcare providers whenever I'm defending them. I say this, I say, listen. Because, you know, they, their ego is very crushed when they first get those papers. And the, the complaint itself has so so much propaganda in it in the way that it's it's a formula, basically. It's a form document for the most part. But it sounds god-awful. Reckless, da-da-da, grossly negligent, all of this other language that's just, it really is just trying to get past what the cap. And, you know, there's a cap on medical malpractice cases for the emotional side, the emotional damages, I guess, pain and suffering, that kind of thing. But in order to get past that, they're all alleging this gross negligence. So the complaint looks god-awful. They feel awful. And the, the person feels like they've hurt somebody. And, and this is somebody who's gone into their profession 
most of the time, if not, well, I think all of the times that I can think of, because they want to help people. And to be told that you didn't help someone, in fact, you hurt them, is emotionally devastating. It is professionally devastating. It ruins your confidence. I've seen some, a lot of tears over the years, and I know you have too. It's, it's hard to watch. Just yesterday, met with a doctor yesterday who cried through our entire initial meeting, devastated by the fact that they have been named. I'm not even going to identify gender. It is. And I, and I do think that to some extent, our plaintiff's brethren who represent the other side of this equation often think, well, it's just a lawsuit. It's not a big deal, right? Like, it's fine. This is just part of the process. Shouldn't you expect this if you are a physician? Yeah, it's and part the of the business. And the answer to that question is absolutely not. They don't expect it. They don't want it. And they do take it very personally when it happens. But what is a malpractice case? And this is, again, I was got so long-winded last time. But anyway, what it, the reason for filing, and in the largest majority of the cases I've seen, I'd say probably 90 to 95% of them, it is not medical negligence. It is a bad outcome. That's what I think makes a malpractice. That, that's what starts the whole thing. It is a patient going in, being you know, given their informed consent, hey, these are the risks and benefits of this procedure, and then a known complication happens, a post-operative infection or things that just can happen despite the fact that everybody's doing very best that they can and, and didn't do anything wrong. But I definitely think unexpected Bad outcomes is the primary driver. I've had a lot of people ask me over the years, why do people file them? Like not, I mean, obviously you had to have a negative outcome because you have to have an injury to have a malpractice claim, right? But why do people file them? And a lot of people say they're just money grubbing. All they care about is the money. And I think in some instances that's true. I can point to one case that I'm defending right now where the widow was left without the primary breadwinner in the family who may or may not have been completely honest with her about their situ with their financial situation and was left with a lot of debt and had never really worked anything more than a retail job and had depended on the spouse to provide everything. And clearly in that instance, the hope is, is that there will be a recovery at the end of the day because she needs the money. But then there are other instances where, in fact, I just met with a doctor this morning where he said, you know, I think there's a lot of guilt on the part of the widow in this case because the original injury that brought the patient to the facility where he was being treated was because the wife said, go do something. And he went and did it and he got hurt doing it and got hurt very badly doing it. And so she doesn't want to be result responsible for that ultimate outcome, right? So there's a lot of emotional stuff in the background that I think plays into a lot of why cases get filed. And it's not just that people are money grubbing, although we would like to believe that about some of our plaintiff's lawyer brethren. Um, it's just not true. I certainly agree with you 100%. And I think that Sometimes parent or the spouse that you mentioned earlier in, in your case, they just want 12 people to tell them it's not their fault. They want it. They want to blame a person. They want to focus that anger um, for this outcome on a person, and they want 12 people to tell them that they're right. I do see that, and especially at spouses, I think parents even more so, though. And there is a lot of emotional value to our doctors when they get a defense verdict, and those same 12 people have told them that they were not negligent. That's huge for many of them, not all of them, but for many of them. 
you know, if someone's out there and they're thinking about pursuing a claim, they need to understand that you don't just get to go to the courthouse and file it. But nine J, Rule 9J was the rule, was it October 1, 2011, Sarah? When, they, when it went into play? I think it was. No, it was long before that. It was really? because 9J went into effect shortly before I arrived in North Carolina, which was in 1996. October 1, 2011 was tort reform. That was when the cap went into place. October 1st, 2011 is when the cap went into play here in North Carolina. But 1996 or 7, Rule 9J went into effect. That's the pre-filing requirement that a plaintiff has to have an expert witness review the case before they can file it. And there have been some nuances and changes to that over the years. And now the requirement is, is that they have to have reviewed the reasonably available medical records to the plaintiff prior to filing a lawsuit. They have to have an expert in the same or similar field as the defendant in order to move forward with a case. Who's going to say that they messed up? And it's different in every state. Like there are some states that have malpractice review panels that have to review the case before the plaintiff has the ability to file it. There are some states, I think South Carolina, where you have to do, do you have to give notice to the other side that you're going to be filing and you have to have an expert available and identify who that expert is before you can move forward in South Carolina and then go through a pre-suit mediation to see if the case can get resolved before it gets filed. So a lot of states have this pre-filing requirement, but the one that we're most familiar with or the two we're most familiar with are North Carolina and South Carolina requirements. But it's not so simple as just going down to the courthouse and saying, here I am and I'd like to file a malpractice case. Well, but let me say one thing about that because I think the reason why 9J was enacted, this requirement that an expert certify your case before you file, was because they were going to stop all the frivolous right, malpractice lawsuits. This was when everybody was talking about, oh, there's an insurance crisis and doctors are quitting and all of this. And so the legislature said, uh, we have an idea. We're going to require someone certify it. Now, here we, 9J is born. Well, what we learned as a society, as a state, from the enaction of this rule was that there are experts out there that are just as frivolous as the lawyers who are filing the <laughs> frivolous lawsuits. And for 500 bucks, they'll certify a dog. I mean, anything. I think that's an unfortunate side of this. With these experts, I personally believe that there is a lot of dishonesty in expert witnesses. Not all of them, obviously. I mean, but we see these frequent flyers that we see the same people over and over and over again. They say the same things every time. They're professional experts. They're maybe even semi-retired, and this is subsidizing their actual bread and butter income, right? So I don't know. I mean, it, it did not it did not serve its intended purpose. It did create, I will say, a very technical big hurdle for a lot of plaintiff's lawyers. Like, you don't dabble in this stuff. Because if you miss the little things, such as that certification, you're out. And then you're dealing with a legal malpractice case, which yes, is you are. a whole nother story in and of itself. I think that our experience has been that some of the smaller, less significant injury cases got weeded out by the enactment of Rule 9J back in the, the mid-1990s in North Carolina because it costs money to get an expert. So no matter what, the financial incentive for plaintiff's attorneys and or plaintiffs themselves who are ultimately supposed to be responsible for those costs is your case has to be worth some amount of money before somebody is going to invest in the hiring of an expert for the most part. Now, there are some plaintiff's lawyers who go ahead and like you said, they have an expert that they use over and over and over again. And that expert kind of gives them a once over and may not charge them all that much. And so 
And I do think, you know, we're very fortunate in North Carolina because we have a very, we do have a very defense friendly jury pool in North Carolina. We've had a lot of success defending cases in front of juries in North Carolina. That has not been the case in other parts of the country. And so frequently plaintiff's lawyers go outside of North Carolina to try and get their experts to review the cases. And again, you know, so funny, we just did this recording with Michael Reddington, the disciplined listening method, and having that awareness, situational awareness in going into things. So if you've got an expert from New Jersey, where I had an expert from New Jersey once I went to take his deposition, he told me he'd been sued 15 times. And I almost fell out of my chair. I was a young lawyer. I could not even believe that somebody had been sued 15 times. And then I realized that his opinion was based upon the fact that in New Jersey, every time there's a bad outcome, there's a lawsuit as a result of that, and they settle all of them. And so their perspective when they're reviewing the materials is that we just settle these. It's not a big deal. I mean, what's that? it happens. Well, it doesn't happen in North Carolina. So there is that difference. And yeah, I mean, you're going to have circumstances where you have experts who are from other parts of the country who just assume that because there's a bad outcome, there's a basis for a lawsuit because in their jurisdictions, those cases get resolved all the time and they get sued all the time. And it's, you know, so they're just like, yeah, oh, of course this is malpractice because where I am, this would be malpractice. But here we actually pay attention to the medicine and we actually pay attention to the facts and we really try to dive in and try and solve the problem and figure out what really happened. So what does it really look like to file a medical malpractice case? Well, first of all, you have to go through that expert certification process that we talked about or whatever that is in your particular state. The complaint gets filed and then you have to start pursuing discovery and we have to come in and provide a response to the complaint in the form of an answer or some type of a motion. You know, in North Carolina, I think more often than not, we go ahead and answer. We don't make motions to dismiss here. There's not a lot of procedural wrangling that goes on in North Carolina. I mean, I think we're pretty, at least in our office, I can't speak to what other people in other offices do, but I think in our office, we, for the most part, just dive in and try and figure out how to defend the case unless there are issues related to service and those sorts of things that are, you know, necessary. You've got, the court has to have personal jurisdiction over people in order to to proceed but absent that, we jump in and we start getting records and we start trying to figure out how we're going to defend the case. You said some big words there, and I just wanted to go back because oh, um, yeah. service is one of them. Because one of the things I have to tell all my clients is so service is when they bring the papers to you. You know, you have, there's somebody, either it's a, a sheriff's deputy or a technical server, or maybe you get it certified mail, whatever. But they have to initiate the lawsuit by sending you the complaint, the propaganda paper, the papers, and the summons. And um, one thing I always tell my doctors, if we know that it's coming and there hasn't been a service yet, hey, tell everyone that lives with you that if a bailiff or a deputy comes knocking on your door, no one's dead. Because it can be really scary when, you know, when you're not expecting it and they knock on the door, the first thing is, oh, my God, what happened? You know, so plus it's intimidating. And sometimes they, some plaintiff's lawyers will kind of be mean about it where they send the sheriff to the person's office, you know, bring him out in the lobby and embarrass them. And that's, I've had that threat before carried out. Um, and it's unfortunate when tactics like that get put in the mix, but it, it does happen. But anyway, yeah, you're right. So then we file a response. And what about, Sarah, what about the cases? Have you ever had a client say to you, 
this is total BS. Like I, I didn't, this is not negligence. I didn't do anything wrong. Get this dismissed. You need to get this dismissed. How do you, what, how do you answer that question? If it really is a frivolous lawsuit, but they've pled it correctly, like what are the chances of dismissal? What kinds of things would make a case get dismissed? So when I get that question, it's the right answer. And what I tell all witnesses and depositions to say is <laughs> it depends. It depends. It depends Don't on the lawyer on the other sauce. side. It depends on the judge that you get. It depends. It depends. It depends. I would say that, you know, the vast majority of the time, we do not have success in early dispositive motions and medical malpractice cases in North Carolina. Now, interestingly, we have had a change in the law recently here, just less than a year ago, where every case now is a, every medical malpractice case now in North Carolina is assigned a particular judge. And I am hopeful that we will see more willingness from our judges to rule on dispositive motions if they have been able to file, follow the case from beginning to end. I think under our system where our judges rode the circuit and are not, you you would be, you'd have a motion to dismiss heard by one judge and you'd have a motion for summary judgment heard by another judge if in fact you even filed that motion for summary judgment and then a different judge at trial. So none of them felt like they were comfortable enough with the information related to the case to rule on a dispositive motion. So they're uncommon, but not unheard of. And I'm hoping that we may actually gain a little bit more traction on dispositive motions now that we have this new rule in place that every case in North Carolina has to have a specific judge assigned from the beginning. Yeah. That's I mean, my hope. Again, maybe. We'll see. I have not had luck with it. I can be honest. Um, you know, when clients tell me, this is junk, I didn't do anything wrong, you need to get this dismissed. One of the first things I say is, listen, let me tell you something. We do not have very many judges willing to flush a case. And even though I understand what you're saying, and sometimes legally, I really feel like in our office there, we don't file motions to dismiss just perfunctory. You know, we take them very seriously. And if I'm filing a motion to dismiss, I've got something, you know, and I really believe that they, I know it's not, no joke. Like it's no, I'm not, it's not funny. And there's something there, but judges don't like to grant motions to dismiss. Definitely not the one, the very beginning of the case. And then there's summary judgment, which is another way, another dismissal uh, mechanism vehicle that you can file after you've done, gathered all the evidence basically before trial. But on both, either side of those, I just don't think that 95% of those get granted. And I think it's unfortunate because one of the things that we are grappling with, especially right now in post-COVID, is just the docket is just thick and deep and horrible. And there's tons of pressure on the judges to move through cases and get them dealt with. And and yet the dispositive motions are still being shied away from. But why? Why do you think that these dismissal motions, when we're making the, some that have good merit, why do you think judges are so reluctant to grant them? First of all, I do think part of it is historically they only got one touch with that case. And they didn't want to make that type of terminating decision for a plaintiff or a plaintiff's lawyer, right? So if they decided to go ahead and dismiss the case, if it's on a procedural error that was made by the plaintiff's attorney, they have the added concern that that attorney may get in trouble, may get sued for malpractice, might get turned into the state bar for making a procedural error that they should have caught. And they don't want to be responsible for that. And I understand that. I understand that. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't grant the motion. I understand the difficulty that they have in granting the motion. 
I also think that historically the law, at least here in North Carolina, has been that negligence actions are peculiarly pertinent or appropriate for jury determination because it's almost always a factual question whether or not there was a breach in the standard of care, whether or not that that breach of the standard of care actually was the cause of the injury. And those are factual injury, factual inquiries that if the plaintiff has filed the lawsuit with a request for a jury trial, that's going to be a question of fact for the jury. And I think most of our judges adhere to that historical legal case law that says that. Well, just to clarify, so the the system is set up, the judges are supposed to decide the law, so the interpretation of the statutes and the law, and juries are supposed to decide the facts. So in other words, juries say are tasked with the what happened here question, whereas mm-hmm. the judges are tasked with the is this legally sufficient? And again, the motions that, that get rid of cases are asking not are you right or wrong? What they're asking is, have you put forth enough information to where 12 people could come up with a story that meets what the plaintiff is seeking. So just because you have one expert doesn't have the qualifications that my experts have, or just because my doctor or whoever thinks that um, the case needs to be thrown out, that's not how this works. It's going to have to be a legal issue. Like it has to be an interpretation of the law. So your complaint, this piece that comes in the very beginning has to not have the elements, the recipe the proper allegations to create a claim, right? The threshold is very high in terms of the question of what what's a jury to decide. And I think there's another motivating factor for cases not getting kicked very often, and that is this. And I hope I'm not stepping on toes here, but I do think this. I don't think judges want to get overturned. And I think that juries are safer for them. If you can have 12 people make the decision, it's sort of a constitutional this is the right to this jury trial idea. And the jury's made the decision instead of the judge. Well, if the judge kicks a case, where does it go? Well, like you said, if there's a potential for the plaintiff's lawyer to get sued because of what they've done, the ball that they dropped, it's going to go to the court of appeals. It's probably going to go to the court of appeals one way Rule or Rule 8540. Yeah, that's right. That's Judge Foner. Drive straight up 85 to 40 and you'll be in Raleigh. You can go to the court of appeals there. <laughs> you don't like my ruling? Well, Ms. Durr, I think you should just take the 8540 rule. I'm sorry, sir. I don't know what that rule is. I'm not familiar with that rule. It's the one where you get in your car and you drive up 85 to 40 and you go straight to Raleigh, the court of appeals. He was not afraid of the court of appeals. But I I don't think that, you know, when the court of appeals issues an opinion and they overturn somebody, I don't think that's flattering, you know? And I think it makes the judge feel like they've done something wrong or the higher court didn't agree with them. So I think that also creates a little bit of a hesitancy as well. Yeah. And I, I do think there it is much less likely for the Court of Appeals to overturn a denial of a motion to dismiss than a granting of a motion to dismiss. So it's just a safer route. Let the case play itself out. The other issue, at least here in North Carolina, is statistically speaking, historically, medical malpractice cases, when they go to trial in North Carolina, the defense wins about 80 to 85% of the time. And so... I think that the judges know those statistics and know that at some point down the road, we're likely to be successful in the case if we decide to take the case to trial. And so why muck it up with a ruling that is just going to get appealed anyway, whereas a defense verdict in front of a jury more often than not does not get appealed. That's a great point. Yeah. So when you, you, so you finish your pleadings, you've lost all your motions. (laughs) (laughs) Just as I took that sip of coffee. You get, <laughs> okay. you, 
you're going into the next stage, I guess, with um, gathering the evidence. That's, I guess, we call that discovery, right? That is the most painful part to me. Oh, Lord, I'm telling you. But what is it? Tell, tell us what it is. Discovery is where you set a, send a set of written questions to the other side that they have to answer, and they either have to answer them in the form of interrogatory responses, which are kind of like a narrative question or an essay, if you might. Tell me what what you're contending your damages are. Tell me what your educational background is. Tell me who's lived with you over the last 10 years. Tell me why you think we messed up. Um, and then there's also document requests that require them to gather and produce documents. And we do the same back for them. They do the same thing to us. We get a set of written questions that we have to answer. Sometimes there are requests for admissions where you have to either admit or deny a particular statement, depending on the case. There are some lawyers who tend to use those more than others as a tool in discovery in our cases. Uh, we are seeing them a little bit more frequently now than we have historically. I'm not sure what that's a function of right now, but we'll figure that out and come back to you with another podcast later on that. And then, of course, after the written part of the discovery, you get into the depositions and having people sit down and get questioned in front of court reporter and under oath to figure out what happened or what people are looking for as part of the case. Now, Sarah, I'm going to ask you this. So the deposition, which is, you know, the, the other side gets to question your doctor, for example, under oath with a court reporter. And sometimes there's a videographer there, too. My experience has been that most of my clients, that's the most intimidating besides, I mean, jury trials down the road at that point. But but that's the most intimidating thing to think about is this deposition. How important do you think the defendants, the doctor, the nurse, whoever it is, how, how important do you think their deposition is in the big picture of the case? It can be everything. It can be everything. If they do not take our advice on how to respond to questions, if they don't pay attention to the questions that are asked, it can be really important. Probably a little less so in a medical negligence case, honestly, than in some other context cases, business cases. I think the depositions are even more important of the parties in business cases. But in medical malpractice cases, you still, you want your physician to be the person that everybody in the room ultimately is going to look to as the doctor that they would want to go to for the problem that the plaintiff had. And if they don't present well at their deposition, you go into trial at a disadvantage. It doesn't mean you can't win, but you go into trial at a disadvantage is my position on that. I don't know how you feel about it. No, I, I think they're really, really important. You know, I tend to overanalyze everything anyway. Another lawyer in town, Richard, we had a mediation yesterday, Richard Rivera over Parker Poe. And it's so funny because he was telling me, we're talking about paranoia. Everyone thinks I'm the most paranoid person in the world. And maybe that's true. You are. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, it's so funny. Somebody on that, on some email sent me something that they had heard a quote from someone else, whatever. But anyway, it's something like, just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get me. <laughs> and I think that's so true. But my point is, is that I do tend to overprepare perhaps um, my clients for deposition just because I do think it's really important. Now, the, what, to, to your point, in the medical cases, sometimes an expert can sort of fix, you know, if someone has made a concession they shouldn't have or gotten tricked into a question, answering it in the wrong way and created a sound bite of some sort that they're going to use. You know, the expert can come back and, and kind of clean it up or explain more. Uh, but I still think that that is a really critical part. I also, th I mean, I think the written part is the written questions are also really critical, uh, especially if you're representing a bigger organization that has more documents than, 
<laughs> than you'll ever know about, you know, yeah. and more more moving parts to everything. But at any rate, so we get through the depositions, we do the the written stuff, we do we ask them questions, we get their medical records. Then they do the expert depositions. And then then what happens? Well, let's talk. Let's back up just for a second to talk about experts. How do you find expert witnesses? How do you find the people that you want to review your cases? Ooh, I'll tell you how I do it. And I think I'm a little different because th- there are some people that have testified several times. I mean, there are people that for different reasons, some of them have testified because their name gets passed around the attorney, the bar one way or the other. And they've, they're known as a good expert. Some of them you have to use because they're so rare. For example, you know, there's a couple of pediatric neuroradiologists or placental pathologists that there's only a handful of them really around that'll do this kind of stuff. And so they get used over and over again. I, I kind of try to take a novel approach. Now, if it's a, a big case, I may mix the two. Like I may use someone who I know is a, is a good person who has testified before who's tried and true. But I really, really, really like to get someone who has never done it before. It takes me more work to get them where they need to be. But to me, if you've never done it before and you're coming from a pure perspective of this is, I'm in the trenches every day. This is the kind of stuff I'm doing every day. This is my gig, right? Then I think you add a little bit of credibility to the entire program. I just used someone recently in a case involving a a birth injury. And she's never testified before. She has never been involved in any medical legal issues ever, 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 ever. She was scared to death. She was nervous. When I first met her, I thought, oh, God, you know, she's really, really green. Let me tell you something. She was good, you know. Oh, and good, because I might need her. <laughs> oh, she, no, she's, she was really, she was really, really good. And her, um, I actually don't know, I don't really don't know how, how we, we came up with her, but she's excellent. Some of them I will look to, you know, what did they publish? What have they written on this subject before? Pull the literature. Have they done studies on it before? Do they? And then what else do I do? I, I'll tell you what else I'm doing with all my cases now. I am really, really efforting towards focusing on getting a diverse panel of experts so that I've got, you know, males, females, I've got different races. I think that's also really important. It's critical to me. I mean, obviously, with our, the makeup of our firm and the way that we do it, we need to practice what we preach. So it's important to me for that reason, but it's also important to me because we all know that different people re- connect, right, in different ways. And you're wanting experts who can speak to lots of different kinds of people, a diverse group of people. So anyway, and those are the things I'm looking for these days. I've definitely migrated from the way I used to do it. I used to go to the familiar. I don't do that anymore. I really don't. No, me neither. In fact, we've got several right now that I'm seeing that other people at other firms are using experts that they discovered through us. And I just, it makes me mad because we can't, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, they're being overused. And so there are, but the the same is true on the plaintiff side, that they tend to use the same people over and over and over again. In fact, I've recently saw a guy out of Missouri, I'm not even going to give him the benefit of saying his name out loud, but he's been used by the same lawyer in three cases that I've had. And then I'm seeing him pop up with other plaintiff's firms from here in our county in North Carolina. And the dude's not even practicing medicine anymore. He's running a company. I just think having that truly independent review. And can we talk just for a second about radiology cases and how important that independence of review is? 
You're going with secret sauce again. No, I don't think it's secret sauce because everybody knows at this point that we've been doing it. And I'm always shocked when I go in and I depose the plaintiff's experts in a radiology case where the allegation is, is that you missed something on a film and the plaintiff's experts say, oh, well, the plaintiff's lawyer told me what was wrong and I just went in and I was able to see it on the film. Well, of course you could because you've already been told what was wrong. And uh, we used to just send the study that was at issue, not tell the radiologist who we represented, not tell the radiologist what was at issue in the case, but we would send them the one study and say, just get the study, open it, call me, dictate your report to me. And now what I do is I anonymize, I have a set of about 10 studies that I've anonymized over time and we slide in the one study that's at issue in our particular case into that also anonymized. They have no idea which of those studies is at issue. And we say, here's, yeah, yeah, so that they can't see the patient name. They can't see the date of birth. They can't see the date of treatment. So they don't know, you know, it's basically to try and reflect how a radiologist would be reviewing images on a daily basis anyway, because they just go through the queue, right? The list of studies that they have to interpret that day. So I try and do that with about 10 or 11 studies and and send that to the reviewer and have them then just call me as you're going through the studies and dictate your report to me. And I want to see if they catch what the abnormality is and how important that is. The truly independent, unbiased, again, with radiologists, I try not to use them over and over again because I don't even want them to know which side I represent. So if I've used them before, they automatically know because nobody, nobody's on both sides of the V. <laughs> well, but you're still, you're, but the way you're doing it though, you're still protecting it because you're sending them a, a plethora. See, I'm a, I can use big words too. You're sending a plethora of studies and they don't know which one, you know, which one is which. Yeah, I've done the same thing actually with, um, with uh, kind of with uh, ER cases, for example, because a lot of times the issue in the ER case is that you didn't catch something. So I don't send them the the second visit where something has been discovered, I just send the first and say, okay, what happened? And then I, I even asked one of them, I had a, it was a meningitis case. I even said, so what do you think happened here? Cause you know, I sent this to you. What do you think happened? And um, he's completely wrong. <laughs> like not even close when he even tried to guess what the diagnosis was ultimately. And that's huge because see my guy at the bedside or my, my girl at the bedside didn't get it either. And, and it really puts them in a, a very good position to be as objective as they can be. I, I agree with you hundred percent. Yeah. I think, and I do think experts can make or break a case. And we do have a couple that we will always use because they are just so good in front of a jury and it doesn't matter how many times you've used them. They just come across as being so neutral, so independent, so knowledgeable. Their CV is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages long. Like who wouldn't use them? over and over and over again. And they're honest too. Like the ones that we tend to use are the ones that have also told us, you know, I can't support, I can't support your client in this case. I need to know that you can tell me that and that you're not just doing this for the money, that you're going to tell me the truth. As I said early on, we're, we're very fortunate that we do um, have a lot of success in front of juries in North Carolina, but we don't want to misrepresent. We've won some that we went, oh my gosh, oof, really? And we've lost some that we went, oh my gosh, really? So what's that like when you haven't had the outcome that you wanted in a trial? So, right, does that mean that there's been malpractice? That Does that mean that we've done something wrong when we've presented a case to a jury and we don't, we don't get the outcome that we wanted? Well, you stumped me because I haven't lost one, so I don't know. It doesn't feel good. I can tell you that. <laughs> I was 
trying to be nice about it. And the only one was when I when there was an admission of negligence and we were just arguing over money. Really? Look at that. I find we're definitely putting this up because I've I don't think I've ever stumped you. Ever. Ever. But no, in, I, I in haven't all had the that years happen to me. I've definitely had outcomes where I don't like what the judge has done. You know, I don't agree with the decision that they've made. It's cost my client a lot of money when I was sure that I was right. Well, I'm not paying. I'm winning, right? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) well, hung juries are tough. Yeah. I mean, one of the hung juries I had um, was 11 to 1 against me. I'll tell you that. It was a bad case, though. It really was a bad case. I remember that one. Yeah. Yes, it was a bad case. It was a very bad case. I mean, it it was a mess. So before you go further, why did you try it? If it was that bad... Because I had to, because we had already offered a lot of money to settle it and they wouldn't take it. And they were like, they just wanted a little bit more. And I mean, my God, I wanted to, I wanted to settle that case so bad because it was an awful case. I want to settle it so bad. I was about to stroke a check myself to add to the pile. But, but yeah, they, they had gotten to a, they had drawn a line in the sand and that was it. And everybody had to, everybody had just had enough. They were all fed up. So they were like, we'll just see what the jury says. Mm-hmm. So we did. And, and it was going to, it was going to hang at 11 to one. Can you believe that? That was a hard one to do, and I was made to try it. But I, And again, I think that when you have to try a case that you don't love, a lot of times it's because of the money. Uh, you can't come to a satisfactory agreement. And that does happen. That definitely happens. Yeah. And I mean, I think the ones that you've had that have come back with a plaintiff's verdict have been less than the amount that you were willing to pay before anyway. Correct. So is that a loss? Is, is that a loss? Really? It's still a loss. It's still a loss to me. But well, I think one of them I did not take as a loss and the other one I really did. So, you know, one of them, we had essentially admitted liability, even though we didn't outright withdraw that as a defense at trial, but we had effectively said, yeah, I mean, we we missed something. The other one was just a very unique circumstance where our client passed away during the first trial. We had to retry the case and he was no longer available at trial and they changed their theory at trial because they had never addressed the questions with him in the first round and he was no longer there to answer it. But again, in that case, they came back with 18% of what they had asked for to settle the case. So we still, you know, everybody else considered it a win. I most decidedly did not consider that to be a win. But there's always a winner or a loser at trial most of the time, no matter how you slice it. So I think that pretty well sums up the anatomy of a medical malpractice case in as quick a way as we could possibly make it. And I think it's, I think you're right. I think we need to come back and we can dissect some of these things more specifically in later episodes. But I think that gives a great general overview of how it goes and we'll cover, cover the rest later. But I think the keys are, at least in North Carolina, defendants don't win dispositive motions. <laughs> or at least, at least we don't in our office. That's not and, very good advertising uh, at sure all. Make sure you get good experts. <laughs> that's a, I know, that's right? Make sure you get great experts if you want to win. And uh, sometimes winning is subject to interpretation. Those would be the key takeaways. So give us the verdict at the end of the day, our listeners, and send us comments, suggestions, um, download, subscribe where you get your podcasts. And we will share some more detail in later episodes. You got it. Signing off. Thanks for listening. 